Hope y'all are doing well. If today is day number one for you, my name is Dean. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here. And if you are our guest uh, today, the only thing that we would ask for from you is if you would go ahead um, right now, if you'd like, take out your smartphone and you can scan the QR code on one of the chairs that's in front of you. Just open up your camera app or you can type in lpguest.com into your web browser. Both those things lead to the same spot. The only reason I say that is that there are message notes that are available to you there so you can follow along. If you'd like to jot your own notes down in that context and email those notes to yourself if you'd like to keep those uh, from today. The other thing that's there uh, is what I like to call a kindness option. Uh, there's a digital guest card there, and if you take a, less than a minute, fill out that digital guest card. There are five different ministries that we're already partnered with listed at the bottom. You choose one, and uh, we'll make an additional $5 donation uh, to that ministry in your honor just to give you the opportunity to do something uh, good and kind today. And again, we're thrilled that you're with us. We are starting a brand new series today called Asking for a friend. And the idea behind the series is that we know that we all, we all have questions. Some of them that we voice, some of them that we wish someone else would voice for us. And so as we walk through the next five weeks of this series, really what we're doing is we're emphasizing the, the 59 one another verses um, that exist in, in scripture in terms of how we treat one another relationally. Because the reality is nobody in this room is going to agree with somebody else hundred percent of the time. We have different families of origin. We have different personal experiences, different generational moments, different generations of people and the way we think about things differently. And so what we believe when we find ourselves kind of in the midst of that tension at times, we believe um, that God answers life's toughest questions, that he has those answers, the ones that we want, um, the ones uh, that we need. So each week we're going to try and deal with maybe a question that man, we'd like to know, what does God say um, about this particular thing? Because it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of tough for us. And so today, uh, the question that we're really going to look at is, why do Christians always seem so angry? And I think I would submit to you that um, they're not as angry maybe as you think uh, they are. It's just the loudest and the angriest of them stand out. Um, but that's the question we want to do our best to try and answer. As the apostle uh, Taylor Swift said, why you got to be so mean, right? That's what we're going to look at um, today. Because the, the danger of not dealing with conflict well, the danger of allowing this bitterness to take root in our soul is that conflict and anger have the potential to polarize and divide us. The good news for us is that the gospel right? This good news come down from God, from heaven to earth. This gospel message that affects us actually has um, the ability to give us unity without requiring uniformity. I'll say that to you again. The gospel actually gives us the ability, it gives us the capacity to have unity without requiring uniformity so that we don't all have to be the same. Over these next five weeks, we are going to look at some of the most uh, challenging literature, I think, in all the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapters 6 and 7. So if you have a copy of the scriptures and you want to turn over there, you can do that. Special thanks, uh, I would say, to Andy Holt, who did a bunch of background research for our teaching pastors uh, as we prepped uh, for this series and got, got ready to teach. The whole idea of what we want to do in looking at 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 is we want to give each of us a heart to do two things, to bring together grace and truth. The gospel said that about Jesus, that he was full of grace and truth. 
So what we want to do is we want to believe truth correctly, and we want to treat each other carefully. If I could say it to you that way, believe correctly, treat one another, um, treat one another carefully. Now just a little bit of background on 1 Corinthians, uh, that group, uh, Acts chapter 18, Paul rolls into Corinth. Um, he helps plant a church. Paul was kind of a traveling missionary in the New Testament, like we're sending folks to the Caribbean, and we're sending folks to India, and we're trying to help plant churches there. Really, the Paul was kind of the original church planter in more of a global perspective in the New Testament. And he planted a church in Corinth, which was a very unusual kind of city, and it says kind of like the Las Vegas uh, of the ancient world in a lot of ways. And he plants a church there. It actually goes really, really well for a year and a half, a couple years. Then he moves on to plant um, another church. But when he does that, um, later on he gets word that things weren't going so great in Corinth. That uh, the reality is after he left, some leaders rose up and eventually they thought that they were wiser, smarter than Paul was that Paul who had taught them everything, kind of that they knew about Jesus and about Christ and about how to lead, they kind of said, we well, you know that Paul, he's kind of old school. We're kind of different in the way that we look at things. Now, um, I have, uh, I'm the parent of three uh, teenagers or two of them are no longer teenagers, still have one teenager at my house. I was a teenager at one time, so I think I can uh, say this, that the church at Corinth is kind of going through the teenage phase, right? Um, you were, maybe you were a teenager at one point, maybe you've had teenagers, maybe you mentor teenagers, maybe you teach teenagers. We all go through this time where we think we know better, right, than our parents know. My dad told me when I was 17 years old that I would be amazed at how much smarter he got between the ages of 17 and 23, and he was absolutely right. And this is, um, this is kind of the phase that they're in. They think, oh, we know better. We know smarter. We're smarter than Paul. But what Paul is going to say to them in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 is, you say that you're wiser than me, but actually you're not even able to deal with some very basic scriptural things. And one of those things relates to how we handle conflict. It's uh, foundational for our lives, not only as human beings, but I would say for our lives as believers, that we handle these issues well, because human conflicts actually give us divine opportunities. Human conflicts actually yield, they actually give us divine opportunities, okay? So we're going to jump in now, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, it says this, if any of you has a dispute with one another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before, uh, instead of before the Lord's people? Now, what Paul is going to speak to, the issue specifically in Corinth, is that Christians were taking other Christians to public court. And basically the whole tenor of the verses that we're going to look at this morning is Paul's like, how dare you? How dare you? do that. And you're like, man, that seems really, really strong. But we're going to get to the reality of why this is so important and critical in Paul's mind. So a couple things to notice um, uh, as far as background goes, as far as local context um, goes um, about, uh, about Corinth. Um, number one, when you read the full context, you realize that Paul is talking about civil matters, not criminal matters. Okay. He's not talking about murder. 
and sexual abuse. He's not talking about criminal matters in terms of, of court. He's talking about civil matters. He's talking about uh, business deals gone wrong. He's talking about property issues among believers, among Christians. And he says, what in the world are you doing taking these into, into the public arena? So it's important to note, he's talking specifically about civil issues among believers or among people who claim to be believers. It's also important to note that Paul um, is not making a statement about all courts. As a matter of fact, uh, the court in Corinth had actually ruled in favor of Paul in a specific case. There are other places in the book of Acts where Paul actually appeals to the local court system. So it's not a posture um, of being against the courts. However, the court system in Corinth was particularly corrupt. Um, I'll show you um, a picture of the layout of Corinth, kind of how it was laid out um, as a city. And one of the things that you're going to notice is that the seat of judgment or the Bema seat or the court for them was right in the middle of town. It was pope, uh, public. It was open air. So people could come around um, for all of these cases and engage. Your jury was typically a jury of about 40 to 100 people, right? So you go into this court, there's 40 to 100 people that form your jury. I'll actually show you another picture, which is from the archaeological ruins of Corinth, which shows you the bench that the judge would have sat on, which, by the way, is where we get our idea of the judge sitting up on a bench in a courtroom um, up high, was from the way that they kind of formed their view of the judge and their view of court. Now, here's how it would work. You'd have two people. They would come in um, to the, the outstanding area. You've got this big jury there. People are walking by, and they're going to stop, and they're going to listen. If you had enough resources, you could hire an advocate. Now, here's kind of where the corruption was involved um, in their court system. People of higher status typically had more capacity to hire a better advocate than people who did not. But when you think about advocate or you think about attorney, don't think about our idea of an attorney. This was more like, um, if you've ever watched Wild and Out um, on MT, you know, when they kind of battle back and forth, like, your mama, so whatever, like, I mean, when they go back and forth like that, and they're just, they kind of roast each other, that's what happened in Corinthian court. It was kind of, a, it had nothing really to do with law or legality. It was just the advocates going back and forth, talking about the other plaintiff, trying to get the crowd or the jury on their side. So it was whoever was the best speaker, the best at roast. So typically one party was going to leave humiliated. They were going to leave uh, being publicly shamed, depending upon who was the better talker, who was funnier, who was the, had the, so think about this is, um, this is like public Judge Judy, right? Or Judge Wapner. Like that's what this Corinthian court is like. And so Paul says to them, what are you doing? You're walking into a spectacle. You who are owners of the, um, the, the relationship, the reflection, the light of the glory of God, and you're bringing that, you're bringing this kind of conflict into this space. And he's going to give them a comparison. Look at verse, look at verse 2. He says, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? 
And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than the matters pertaining to this life? So Paul gives them a comparison. He zooms out. He goes 20,000 foot view and gives them a cosmic perspective. And he really refers to our eternal roles as Christians. He appeals to the scriptures that, that he knows. He knows that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, hey, Christians, or Jesus says to his disciples, you are going to judge sitting on thrones, eternally speaking, you're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel says, hey, the saints are going to judge for, uh, for eternity. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2 um, says that we are going to rule and reign with Christ. So the idea is that part of our eternal identity as believers is that Paul says, look, if you're going to be judges for eternity, how in the world are you, are you going to give that authority away to somebody who's not a believer to judge this, this what are seemingly simple matters, things that you can find ways to come to agreement about? If you can't agree about these things, you're not understanding your eternal perspective. So what he's calling us to do is that our identity, our identity in Christ should inform our response to conflict. Or maybe I'll say it better this way. Our identity should determine our activity when it comes to conflict. 2,000 years ago, God left heaven, came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And at the end of his life, he was brutally humiliated, tortured, and shamed publicly on a cross to pay for your sins and my sins. Say, so how do you know that, right? How do you know? We talked about the resurrection last week. We sang about it this morning. The proof is in your wounds. That Jesus came and he shared eternal life with us. So what? So that means that your reality, whether or not God accepts you, is not based. It's not based on your performance yesterday. It's not based on your performance years ago. It's based on Jesus' performance on the cross. And when you realize that, and you live into the reality that you are God's son or you are God's daughter, all of a sudden, you can treat conflict different. When you have an eternal perspective, here and now, here and now you've got an eternal perspective about who you are in Christ, God's son, God's daughter. You start from there. It should inform how we handle conflict. And hopefully, prayerfully, I think what Paul is pushing us towards is that we're going to do that better. That we're going to do that, that we're going to do that differently. Because we know our eternity is secure. So here's what he says then in the next, in the next verse. He says, so if you have such cases, why then do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? So Paul gets right down to the core of the matter. It's not just that you're not living from your own identity, but when you don't live from your own identity in the midst of conflict, what you do is you're giving someone else judgmental authority in your life who may not have a believing perspective. And because they don't have a believing perspective, what ends up happening is this ends up reflecting poorly on the name of Christ. That's really the core of what, of what Paul is saying. Now, I said all that to say this to you. 
If you're sitting here right now thinking, why in the world are we talking about lawsuits among Christians? Like, Dean, this is not, I mean, 80 to 90% of the people in this room will never take anyone to court, let alone take another believer to court. So why this passage? Why this text? All I can just say is I studied this text. I had the very same thought. I'm like, God, why lead us this direction? Because... I don't think, I mean, as much as I know, I'm never going to take somebody to, to court another Christian brother, another Christian sister over something like this. And just this general reminder, this general reminder of the Spirit of God in my heart, but you do it all the time whenever you criticize another Christian brother or sister. You do it all the time when you say it, but you don't say it, right, on social media. You get on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and you're going to try and convince everybody else to your opinion, and you're not going to say the person's name, but there's a whole lot of people out there that know exactly who it is that you're talking about. You do it every time, Dean, whenever there's conflict, whenever there's awkward distance between you and another believer, and instead of trying to close that gap, you go and talk to somebody else about it, and you gossip about somebody else and what they ought to do and how they ought to believe. You do it, you do it all the time. You do it all the time whenever there's, there's conflict with you and somebody else, and instead of going to them and sitting down and talking about it and reasoning from the perspective of your eternal identity, you just pack up and say, you know what, I'm going to go to another church, I'm going to go to another place, another space, I'm going to go to another group, because I just don't, don't want to deal with it. I don't, want to, I don't want to deal with this reality. The re truth is that we do this, that we do this all the time. And the more that I thought about this reality is, quite frankly, is ubiquitous. It is all over, all over us and all over our lives, and certainly culturally, it's what creates this groundswell, this question, man, are Christians always this angry? Are they always this mean to each other? Like that question comes from somewhere. It comes from some place. And so all of us have to deal with it. Here's what Paul says. Here's how you deal with it. Verse, verses um, five and six, I say this to your shame. Now, shame is a, shame is a bad word in our culture, Right? It's a bad word in our culture. The, the ways that we typically talk about shame and we typically talk about hiding and we typically, those, that is not this word. Paul says, I say this to your shame. It means to be inverted. In other words, Paul says, you are upside down about this issue. You think that you're the authority. You think that you've got all the answers. You think that you're the one who knows it all. People need to listen to you and people need to listen to your opinion. And he says, you've got it upside down. What's leading you, the leading edge of your heart is pride. You've, you've, got, it, you've got it flipped upside down. He says, um, excuse me, he says, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one wise enough among you to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes against brother, and that before um, unbelievers. You skip down then to verse, uh, go down to the next verse, verse seven. To have lawsuits at all, with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even, um, even your own brothers. 
Paul gives us an incredible picture of what it means to be a follower of Christ in the context of conflict. And I will be honest with you and tell you, this perspective is like a cheese grater on the American soul. Paul says, why are you doing this? Why are you fighting? And, and, and what's the reason? I think we all know it. What's the reason? Because I want my rights. I've got these rights. And, and I need to convince, I need to, be, I need to justify my feelings. I need to justify my opinions. I need to convince other people to be on my team, my side of the argument. I've got this, I've got this little gotcha way that, that I say things on Twitter, and it's so amazing. Have, has any, have, have any of y'all ever convinced anybody to come on to your side of an argument, right, on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram because of a little quippy saying this or that, right, in the middle of conflict? Because, man, I, I want my rights. I deserve my rights. And again, I want to be clear. We're talking not about criminal cases. We're talking only about Christian Christians in the public arena. Can you imagine if 2,000 years ago, God left heaven in the person of Christ and came to earth, and he said, you know why I'm here? I'm here because I'm going to get what I deserve. I deserve glory. And you people, you're all about your own pride and your own arrogance. And you're, I'm here because I'm going to get my rights. You know what Jesus does when he goes to the cross? He completely offers up his rights. He intentionally denies his rights. Jesus did not come to get his rights. He came to take our wrongs. Jesus did not come to get his rights. He came to take our wrongs. And so when we see that and when we welcome that reality, that salvation reality into our lives, it allows us to live differently in terms of conflict. So my rights are not my mission. We're all going to say that together because I, I can just see it on your faces how excited that you are about it. On three, ready? One, two, three. My rights are not my mission. Let's say it again. One, two, three. My rights are not my mission. What is my mission? living my identity out in the glory of God in such a way that it reflects beautifully on the person of Christ, not because it's fake, but because he really is beautiful. So I love him in the ways that he's called me to love him. And as I love him in the ways he's called me to love him, it brings him, me more joy and it brings him, it brings him more glory. And listen, we are not always going to think the same. We're not always going to have the same opinions, and conflict is inevitable in our life. So we have to understand how we're going to handle it in a way that glorifies God. And we can do this. I was thinking about this week. Uh, my wife, Angie, right? We don't agree about everything. And we are one. Covenant, right? Marriage, we are one. And we are, you know, we're growing in the right direction, going in the right direction. Um, she is consistently reforming her wrong views to come into alignment with my right views. It is working. 
don't look over there because she's not here. She's leading worship in Marion today. I wouldn't dare say that if she were in the room, right? Listen, we're not always going to agree. But what we can do is we can live in the unity of the gospel based on what Jesus has done for us. So as we get ready to kind of wrap the message today, I want to give you four what I believe are very biblical steps that help us deal with conflict. Step number one, I know it sounds simple, but pursue God. We always start with the word and prayer. Pursue God. We go to him for direction to what his word says, what the truth says. We want to believe the truth correctly and at the same time, treat one another carefully. Pursue God, word, and prayer. And I would just say at um, some moments in the life of our church, we have the opportunity to create space for it. One of those is coming up this Wednesday night. Across all five of our campuses, we're inviting everyone who wants to come. We're going to get together this Wednesday night and we're just going to pray. Well, well, there'll be some worship that will be involved, but we're going to pray together at our Delaware campus. Um, you can get all the details at Guest Central. You can go to the LifePoint app to find the time. But we would love for you to come and just join us in a night as we start a new school year, as we see the things that are going on in our world, just to pray, to pray for the glory of God to surface in our lives. Number one, pursue God. Number two, Pursue the person with whom the conflict or disagreement is with. This is Matthew 18, 15. First step, right? Humanly speaking, we're going to pray. We're going to pursue God. Next thing you do is you pursue the other person. And you sit down and you try to work it out as believers under the foundation of being God's sons and being God's daughters. If you can't find reconciliation among the two of you, step three, you want to pursue wise counsel. You want to go to somebody who's got a sense of biblical wisdom that you trust. And Paul would say here, you, you don't want to submit yourself, right, to unbelievers because they don't think the way that you do and they don't have the identity that you have. So you want to pursue wise counsel. This is why it's so critical to be part of a life group. As you get to know people and as you develop relationships with people, they can become that wise counsel in your life. We're getting ready to launch a brand new term of groups here in two more Sundays. If you are not in a group, we have eight new groups that are starting this fall term. We have some care-focused bridge groups that are starting on Sunday mornings. We have four groups that are already ready to multiply. We have four more groups who are set maybe to multiply um, midterm. It is critical to be part of a group. And if you want more information, uh, the new Life Group catalogs are available in the lobbies today. Grab a catalog. You can see all the information that you need to see about joining a group in one of those. And then the last step, you've gone to one another, <clears throat> you've gotten wise counsel, maybe brought them with you in the process, that's Matthew 18, 17. What happens if you still, there's no reconciliation, because that's the goal, right? Reconciliation is the goal. Unity is the goal. Reflecting well on Christ is the, my problem, I'm about to you, my problem is that I, when I get in conflict, my goal is not always unity. My goal is to win, right? I want to win the argument. But let's say you get all the way to the end of this process. Paul says here in verse 8, is it not better to be defrauded? Is it, is it not better? Because he says if you take this in front of, uh, uh, if you take this in front of unbelievers, if you're reflecting poorly on Christ as you're gossiping, um, 
What's he say? You've lost already. You've already, there's no way to win. You've already lost. So, last step. If you can't, if you can't find um, reconciliation, if you can't, what if you just lose? What if you just pursue suffering in the midst of a lack? That's the cheese, that's the thing for us. But Paul says, I want to know him. Philippians chapter three, verse 10. I want to know him, right? I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And what's the next thing? And the fellowship of his sufferings. As believers, we're going to be pulled into that at times. But as we do that, even then, living that out of our identity, we we glorify him. Maybe what it is today is that we could be a body of believers that reflects what Avery said right from the top uh, of the service. Today, that we can keep our eyes focused on Jesus, not focused on what I'm winning or losing, not focus, focused on my rights or not getting my rights or getting what I think that I deserve. But maybe we could be a group of people that keep our eyes focused on him. What if we could be a people that are known for doing what Christy and Kyle talked to us about earlier, sending people into the world sacrificing their time and energy and resources to go into and throughout the world to make a difference. My rights are not my mission. But I have been given the opportunity to have the capacity to reflect the beauty of Christ and to do that publicly in a way that aligns my life with his. This morning we have the opportunity to experience that um, in the lives of 15 people who are going to go public um, with their baptism. I think we've got six or seven of them in this service and the rest of them in the 11 o'clock service. And so what they're saying is this thing that has happened on the inside of me, that has changed me, that has made me a son or a daughter of God. I want to live that out. I want to show that in a public way, not in a perfect way, because we're never going to be that, but in a way that lets others know that he is what we sang earlier. He is King Jesus in my life. So I'm going to pray, and then we have the opportunity uh, to experience uh, the joy of seeing these folks go public with their faith. So would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your goodness to us. And God, this opportunity that even in the midst of difficulty, we can come to the place and space um, where others can see you in us, even in the most difficult of moments. And so God, we're saying today that we trust you. Thank you for these folks who are going public this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.